and welcome to Geeks with Shields, your home for all things good and nerdy in this, the darkest timeline. I'm Lord Colonel Ulrich, and with me as always is... His shield brother, Axel Wright. How are you doing today, Axel? I am... I don't know how I'm doing today. I just got back from a, a trip to Oregon, or Oregon, to visit a friend of mine and go see a concert, and that was like a pretty tough six days, a lot of driving, so... Oof. Yeah, it's a long drive. Yeah, I had friends in the car, though. I had uh, Wretched and Stevie, both been on the podcast, so I can say it, that it was them. But yeah, they were both in the car with me. made things go a lot faster. That does help. As a side note, I found out when I got there that the uh, concert I was going to, there was a a protest. (laughs) That's a new thing for me, and that'd be worth talking about sometime. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely worth talking about. But... On today's episode, we will be talking about the neglected sibling to the MCU, the Netflix Cinematic Universe, where we're going to cover every season from Daredevil to the second season of Jessica Jones. Except for Punisher, because we spent a whole episode talking about Punisher. Yes, Punisher, shortly. Punisher's awesome. Go watch it. Yeah, I actually just finished rewatching it with my lady, so, like last I night. that goddamn uh, minigun. <laughs> that needs to be a thing. Sure, sure. All right. So let's start from the top by talking about Daredevil Season 1. Uh, what do you think? Like, what were your initial thoughts for this? Well, here's the funny thing about Daredevil as a character concept is he's one of the best uh, options to make a television series about when it comes to comic book characters. I mean, the, the whole concept of vigilante by night, lawyer by day, it's like, that's just brilliant. Now, admittedly, the show doesn't actually play on that as much as I would like it to like I figure that a proper adaptation of Daredevil would spend some time doing like lawyer procedural stuff like you know law and order just mixed in with you know vigilante superhero stuff and I think we'll get there maybe but for now Daredevil was focused more primarily on the vigilante stuff with the the lawyering just being more an excuse to deal with Matthew Murdoch's uh, ethical quandaries and his relationship with his people in his life which is fine it's fine yeah, no, a season one, I think, like, I think we'll get there because season one, he's fresh out of law school. They're trying to establish their law firm. And he kind of gets thrown into this whole big what's going on in New York with possibly the best villain the Netflix series has had with Kingpin. Oh, not possibly. It totally is. Uh, Wilson Fisk is played by a. D'Onofrio, I can't remember his yeah. first name, but uh, D'Onofrio is damn brilliant. He's pitch perfect, I say. Yeah, which is saying something because I was a huge fan, not a fan of the Ben Affleck movie, but their interpretation of Kingpin. Well, the thing is, if you go back and look at that movie, if you go back and look at that movie, uh, it's not a terrible movie. It's just, no. it's it's got a lot of problems, particularly everything to do with Elektra. <laughs> so. It's early 2000s, but Another topic, another time. Yeah. Um, my biggest fear going into this one, when the first trailer was, I'm looking at, it, oh no, this is just going to be Batman. I hate that. Um, that comment, like. Well, that was my fear because that's what the first trailers look like. It's dark. It's gritty. You can't see what's going on. <laughs> He's brooding on the rooftops. It's- you know, it's it's funny considering that Daredevil season one probably has the best choreographed fights of any of the Marvel properties, not counting oh, yeah. like we'll Steve Rogers that movies. Because that has been a detriment to the rest of the series, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, already they uh, they did, uh, what, what's the word? 
their casting as Charlie Cox as Matthew Murdoch is pretty like great. I've heard uh, a couple of reviewers who aren't big on him because he doesn't like stand out comparatively, but I think he's kind of perfect as what should be the, the moral center of what was eventually going to be the defenders. I mean, if he's supposed to be the Leonardo of this particular group, then, you know, they, they chose the proper actor, I think. Yeah, no, and this first season does a really good job of setting up this universe. It kind of, you know, hints at things to come, like the hand, uh, this whole criminal underground, you know, the uh, the chase. It just it does really good world building, but it's really kind of centered on this great, I don't know what the word for it is, feud, I guess is the something between Matt Murdock and Wilson Fisk, and how they both want to fix the city and make the city better, but in their own twisted ways well you know what's funny i i get what you mean but i personally feel like a lot of the strengths of daredevil season one don't have to do with the interaction between uh murdoch and fisk at all i actually think that um because they have their first conversation across the uh like the walkie-talkie when he's dragging the Russian around and being chased yeah. by the city. And that was just fine. But I feel like in a lot of ways, like they don't really get to have a proper you know, reason to really be at each other's throats other than a, like a where they are positioned. And by that, I just mean, I find it super interesting to see Fisk going about his business. I, I love seeing uh, Daredevil talk about like why he does the things he does. Once it actually comes to hero take down the villain though, I, I don't know. It felt a little simple comparatively to their individual parts. Yeah, but I think we both agree that the way they slowly introduced Fisk into the series was brilliant. Oh, yeah, I agree. You're kind of teased. You don't really see him till the third episode. And in the third episode, it's just him in an art gallery, all nonchalant. And it's been built up. This guy is the single most pow- terrifying, powerful individual in New York right now. And he's just chilling out at an art museum. <laughs> yeah, sure enough. Uh, and it, I think it really sets up a duality of his personality. Well, it's certainly important that was um, episode four that ends with him decapitating a guy with a car door. I think it is. Because like up to that point, I think that means that the episode four then was the one that was largely about his date with uh, I want to say Vanessa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which by the way, seeing a supervillain's dating life is something I never realized that I would care about, but it's super fascinating to see like, you know, hints of how much Vanessa knows about what he really does and how much they're willing to like talk about it. And, uh, and then like, and there's the idea of his whole reaction to why he decapitated the guy with the car. is just cause he interrupted the date. All he did was come in and say like, we need to talk, but that was enough to be, it kind of shows that while Fisk, the whole episode is very in control and very much, you know, the kingpin, he's kind of a child who throws this temper tantrum that just happens to kill a guy. So. It shows how unstable he is, that he's really kind of, the way I interpret, he's this seething ball of rage that's barely contained at any given time. Which is why he needs Wesley, and I love Wesley. Like, that's oh, his, yeah. his main, uh, his second hand who handles all the day-to-day operations, and that, I, I, like, I love that character. I kind of wish they hadn't killed him, <laughs> but at the same time, the fact that they did kill him surprised me, so. Yeah, and they kind of needed to just to progress the plot. Yeah, but uh, in the interest of time, I want to say that, like I mentioned before, Daredevil Season 1 has, like, the best choreography 
of oh, any of the it like they had they throw Charlie Cox and his double around a bunch as he fights and it looks amazing considering he has no actual powers. Yeah. Um, I think there's a scene in the episode two where it's just a single cut shot where he's you don't even see most of the fight. You just see him fight a couple guys, but most of it's happening in like rooms that are off of a hallway and the the sound design and just the like the camera slowly moving forward. It's just a great shot, a great piece of cinema right there. So Yeah, well this whole one and the reason it works I think is you like you said, he has no real superpowers outside of his, you know, super senses. Yeah. Oh, but also, because he's running around in this, you know, cloth outfit, he feels really exposed, and yeah, he gets brutalized, and it really feels visceral, and it creates this sense of tension. Be like, oh no, this guy could die. Also, that's the same episode we get our uh, first appearance of the real star of Netflix Marvel, Claire Temple. So, <laughs> you mean Netflix Coulson? Yeah. Except she's in more than Coulson was. She's in. Uh, yeah, Coulson kind of got shafted, but. Yeah, but before we leave, I want to bring back to like because it's a Netflix series, it's serialized, it's telling one story across. I want to say it was thirteen episodes, I believe. Um, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, like having this long movie. And there are aspects of each episode that are certainly individualistic, and I I like serialized television as much as the next guy. But I feel like Daredevil really could be at its best if you make it more episodic have more episodes where it's just okay here's the person i'm defending and here's what i have to do as a lawyer and then at night i'm going out and finding clues and beating up people and getting the real criminal that has directly to do with the the trial the case i'm dealing with like i want to see more of that personally yeah no i kind of feel that falls into what a lot of people call the problem with streaming shows in that it's met it's filmed and shot to be consumed in a single sitting instead of individually over time yeah which is why uh end of the fucking world should have just been a movie not a show yeah but that's besides the point all right so let's move on to our second show and you're more of a fan of this one than i am so i'll let you kick it off well jessica jones season one is probably in my opinion the best thing in the netflix marvel verse i like oh, how uh i like how focused it is actually before i even get into that i just want to say that right off the bat when i popped in episode one of jessica jones um season one i don't know i popped in it was on netflix like i had a disc or anything but i liked and this may sound weird but i like how the show seems to go out of its way to make jessica gross like she's the protagonist of the show and is a a lady but the the show is not interested at all in sexualizing her and that alone was like well that's fucking the relief because i didn't want to have to deal with that. <laughs> yeah, and no, and it kind of fits with the whole noir feeling of this show and kind of the metaphor of sexual assault that kind of runs beneath the whole series. Exactly, which totally would undermine the entire point if you sexualize the, the main character who is a sexual abuse victim. So, which, it's yeah. Them, but... they, no, they do not skip around that one, which I'm happy they did because the alias comics are just fucked up. Yeah. But Jessica Jones and uh, that that actress, um, I had seen her in a couple of the things before. Uh, I'm blanking her, her name right now too. Yeah, I'm blanking her name as well. Uh, I think wasn't she in Breaking Bad? It's like yeah. Jessica's. Yeah, yeah, she was great in that. So it's like I already knew she was good, but to see her uh, in this, like playing this hard 
badass, not hero, who just constantly drinking and doesn't oh, yeah, like anyone. Oh, great representation of alcoholism, too. No, she's not really made up as this is a good person. This is someone to be idolized. No, this is a broken person. This is a bad person. She is fun in all of the ways that, like, edgy characters are trying and failing to be. And I'm saying that from a writing perspective. Like, we all know that 90s comics at this point are embarrassing, really. It's because a lot of... Yeah, and a lot of them were trying to do something like this, have a a dark, broken character. But because it was so over the top with them, it was just it's just goofy and embarrassing in hindsight. But Jessica rides that line very well with her uh, snark because the fact that she's snarky lends this like depth of humanity to the uh, to the obviously broken person she is. Well, they do so. a good job of representing how what. Uh how broken she is. They don't necessarily, which is, again, this is a great thing, they don't immediately jump into, okay, here's her entire backstory right out of the gates. Like, this is a broken person. We're going to feed you details of why they are so broken. Yeah, and it's funny, because you don't really have to, I mean, we're not doing plot summaries, because these shows have been out for a long time, but right, Jessica Jones is fundamentally about, oh, Jessica's trying to live her life, and then the person that abused her comes back, who she thought was dead, turns out to be alive, a la Kilgrave, David Tennant, who has the power to mind control people because he's the purple man. And then the show is about her dealing with it. So pretty simple plot, but like, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, just the simple aspect of an abuse victim being violently confronted with their abuser and having, and you, and in her case, moving past it is a physical obstacle in most you know the metaphor that's going for that real people to deal with is just getting over their memories and what it did to them uh, you know because usually in a, in most cases you can physically get away from your abuser through things like you know moving or, or whatever like that and your abuser can't you know control people but in this case it's take that idea and manifest it physically into this literal superpowered being who will not leave until she deals with him yeah <laughs> so. And then the best part is she has super strength. She could kill him, yet her first reaction is to run the fuck away. Yeah. Well, also she wants to uh, exonerate her clients because I feel like – and that's a big thing too. The, the idea that Jessica Jones throws herself into her work as a way of coping with what's happened to her. So – and because she said she's not a hero, but like the point of the show is to show us like there's definitely a hero there. She just doesn't recognize it. And the fact that she's willing to go so far out of the way to, you know, exonerate her clients when she could just like when she has Kilgrave, yeah, she could just snap his neck and end all her problems. But no, she's got a client whose life has been fucked just like hers by Kilgrave and she's going to save them. So. But let's talk about what I think is fair to say is the divisive bit of this show for us and that's our take on Kilgrave. I know you really like him. I was disappointed with him. Okay, well then why don't you go ahead first. To me, Kilgrave in the comics was a psychopath. You know, pure and simple. Just cold, calculating, I want this, I'm going to have it. And I was really excited, like, okay, David Tennant playing a bad guy. Haven't seen this. He's been the good guy. And he's introduced well, and he goes with but so much of the time he feels like a petulant child and less like a menacing threat. It, his, the way he acts undercuts the menace this guy should have. 
You know what's funny? This is a perfect example of what I've talked about a couple in a couple previous episodes. Me and you can agree exactly on what is going on and see and one person see it as a positive and one person sees it as a negative. Because the fact that he's a petulant child is why I like him so much. Because if he was just the uh the you know kind of stoic psychopath force of nature that. villain. Yeah, if he was just the force of nature villain that he is in the comics, like sure it could work, but as a metaphor, I think it would kind of it would dehumanize what's going on with the whole abuse metaphor, and it would make him like basically just another riff on something like the Joker or something like that. But by by turning him into this character, that David Tennant definitely brings his own like tenantness because I've heard people argue like, yeah, I just see David Tennant. Well, it's like, yeah, that's because they chose an actor whose natural skills lend towards what they wanted, which is to have a villain whose entire villainous persona is built around the fact that he is a child with more power than any child should have. And that this is what happens when that happens. So that's what makes him interesting because then it also additionally to doing that is basically the show saying directly to any people who are the abusers in the, in this metaphor, this is how we see you. We see you as whiny children who take what you want with no empathy for the people you abuse. We hate you. And this is how we see you. So, which is brilliant. And I get what they're going for. It's just, it, every time I rewatch, it's like, this is the one part that doesn't work. This also we got to talk about real quick, though. This introduced us to Mike Coulter as Luke Cage, and I thought that was fantastic casting. Oh, yeah. He's perfect. I heard rumors that for a while he was trying to – I don't know how true this was – that he was looking to be Superman. And just based on his uh, portrayal of Luke Cage, I would have bought him as a version of Superman. Sure. Like, he's he's imposing, but at the same time, like, he comes off really sweet and, like, warm, which is exactly the kind of – atmosphere you want luke cage to emanate yeah right? no he's a fantastic choice for luke cage we'll talk more about him when we get to luke cage season one yeah even the side characters with jessica jones i like that the show deals with like people just getting over things like um i want to say malcolm <laughs> sorry i just want to watch um i've heard some people refer to him as like marvel's favorite hufflepuff or something like that <laughs> Uh, but how you know he's dealing with his uh, heroin addiction, so it's like it's it's a different kind of abuse survivor, but it's not the same kind of abuse. He basically abused himself and became addicted, and now he's trying to deal with that. So Jessica dealing, helping quote unquote him through it as a way of like reflecting what she's dealing with, taking strength in your own life, and he's like a way of visualizing what she could have been if she didn't have her own strength, right? So there's like a lot going on with their interactions and to see him grow stronger throughout the season is really nice. And, you know, Jessica Jones's sister, Patsy, Trish, she's all right. She's not particularly interesting, but the idea that she obviously is super jealous of Jessica Jones having these powers and wants them is super fascinating, but only comes to fruition really in season two. So we'll talk about that later. And then there's a, her lawyer, whose yep. name escapes me. Uh, Jerry um, Hogarth. Jerry Hogarth, thanks. Dealing with her divorce and uh, being the the image of a at first the image of the like badass ice queen um, who's career oriented, and then we see like there's a a looseness to her that she hides, and uh, it it humanizes her in an important way to say like 
this this image of this kind of character that's usually been done in most other movies and television shows to be a caricature. Let's explore what a, a real person like that might be like by showing us their vices and when they fuck up and how they feel about the people around them. And Jerry Hargroth's a good way to, I think, explore that. So, Yeah, no. A lot of great characters in this show. And fortunately, they all get explored in the second season, which we'll get to. Now I want to talk about one of my favorite, you know, overall, which was Daredevil Season 2, which I admit is weaker than its predecessor. Before we go to Daredevil Season 2, I want to make this easy and just say that pretty much every single problem I had with Daredevil Season 2 is Elektra-related. So, like, if we just take take Elektra, put her in a little bubble of, I I don't know if this actress is any good, anything else, but the writing, the story, and how she's played, like, everything about Elektra does not work (laughs) in this series. And it just distracts from the stuff that's actually interesting, a la... Punisher. So, yeah, let, let's let's cut ahead of that one because yeah, Electra doesn't work in this season. I don't know if it's because she didn't have enough time to be introduced or it was writing. Okay, but... base problem with Electra because uh, a listener to the podcast told me that he'd like to hear us like explain our views a little more in detail. So, um. Electra, like a base problem with her, for instance, is they never adequately explain why she views the world the way she does. Like with with uh with Daredevil, right? We get that amazing sequence, or we get multiple sequences, but like in season one about how he sees his father, and that's how he feels about fighting, or the sequence about how he heard that girl getting abused every night and how he couldn't stand not doing it. Like we have these explanations of, okay, this is how Matt Murdock got to be the person he is Electra just shows up and she's like yeah you should just kill people because that's easier and we don't really get a sense of how she got to this try and write it off as she's the black sun and therefore inherently evil but even sticks like no one is inherently good or inherently evil that's just dumb yeah that's that's the thing thing. at that point she's not a character she's just a plot device and, an and that is why one. she doesn't work in this season is she takes away the focus and she's poorly implemented she's just kind of this wrecking ball that comes into matt's life like oh you seem to be doing good everything seems good mind if i fuck it all up and you can have a character like that hell Kilgrave is that in season one of jessica jones but for the reasons i explained he fits into the metaphor and is characterized in such a way that he is a character whether you like that character or not you admit he is a character, but yeah, and he Electra serves really, a purpose. He yeah, fits but, the narrative. Yeah, Electra really isn't like they try to make her this kind of party girl who likes to fight and has no problem with killing. But that that isn't a personality. That's just that's just ingredients to to like move um, the ethics of Matt Murdock along. Which, by the way, we have spent a whole season with Matt Murdock dealing with the whole like you know, how, how he does violence. And there's even a better instance of the, the kill versus not kill thing in this season when he has his conversation with the Punisher, yes, who is the so. perfect foil to have that conversation and does the job way better than Electra does. Yeah, so I was going to say, let's jump right into what works. Punisher. I, yeah, John Bernthal. Oh. This, again, this sold me on Punisher because when they announced they're going to choose Punisher, I'm like, okay, cool. But he's kind of a one-note character. How are you going to, you know make this work and no the fact that they really kind of flesh out his backstory 
They don't try and make him a good guy. All things they explore in Punisher season one is established here. And he works as this perfect counterpoint to, you know, Daredevil with a great line. You hit the bad guys, they get back up. I hit them, they stay down. Well, he's definitely the full measure versus half measure. And yeah, his whole conversation with Daredevil, Lance Daredevil chained up, like that is the second, my second favorite part of all of season two. It's just their first big conversation where Punisher has him. He could kill him, but it's also illustrating Punisher's not here to kill just anyone who gets in his way. That's why he's trying to like talk to Daredevil to be like, hey, I've got this job. I'm going to do it. I don't want to kill you, but if you get in my way, I'm going to have to. So. No, and he works. Again, he fits because Matt's kind of whole thing is he's got the Catholic guilt of what I'm doing is wrong and that makes me feel bad, but not doing anything is even worse. And am I doing enough? And then Punisher strolls in, which is, hey, I am you taken to your furthest extreme. <laughs> Plus, like, like I said before, 90s car- comic characters tended to be uh, silly in how edgelord they would be but Punisher is a prime example yeah an original comic book Punisher I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who who like that version of Punisher that's fine you're allowed to have your taste I personally like I'm not a edge kind of turns me off like I don't like edge it's silly to me so this version of the Punisher who yeah is very tragic and he's a a vet but he also like quotes a child nursery rhyme right before he shoots someone yeah Yeah. it's like that's very rounded. That's not edge. That's like this is that's a real thing that someone damaged like this might do. It, it makes him feel more like a real person. So, yeah. And I know a lot of people really hate on Foggy this season. But wow. I I'm not I don't hate him. I think it works because you're kind of seeing, you know, Matt is not being able to balance his personal life and his life being Daredevil. Well, it's unfortunate because in Daredevil season one, the episode that's built around just Foggy and Matt talking about him being Daredevil is amazing because it feels like like Foggy is is totally quote unquote in the right for how he is talking with him. And this and this season takes that concept of like Foggy treating the Daredevil uh, suit and whatnot as like an addiction. And he's kind of harps on it too much. Yeah, but at the same time, I it's like... I don't know if he is because Matt is destroying their law practice. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, I don't necessarily disagree with you because I had no problem with Foggy, really. Like I said, all my problems with the season are lecture-related. I'm just saying I think that's what is bothering people when it comes to Foggy. Is he's a little bit relentless when it comes to, like... Because we are the audience, right? We like seeing conflict, but at the same time, we want to see Matt Murdock daredevil around so if foggy is too often trying to stop him from daredeviling around it becomes almost like he's against the audience right at least that's how it yeah. can feel and that's kind of the problem is foggy gets all of that dumped on it's like okay foggy you are going to be the voice of dissent karen you're going to be the supporting kind of sort of girlfriend by the way kind of uh, sucks just... those are both really good characters that got sidelined this season yeah although karen i feel like karen gets some like um, agency, which is nice, because we've seen her getting you know stronger as a character. I want to say um, my favorite scene or episode of the whole season that was definitely the Kingpin one, which just illustrates how much the show really should just have Kingpin. <laughs> so, oh yeah, well, no, again, reinforcing is like ah, you've been sent to prison. You have no power. You have no power. 
okay, I'm going to hang out here for a couple weeks, and then I'll have all the power. Yeah, it's almost like I heard um, Stevie commented about this, where it's like in the first season, he's Wilson Fisk, and then in prison, we see him become the kingpin. Which is the great thing about these shows. They allow you to build your villain. And no, yeah. he's coming back for season three. I'm super excited to see where they go, and I really am curious if they're going to introduce uh, Bullseye to the mix. Yeah, we'll see. Now, uh, a, pro- a problem, though, is that the season, right, like I said, all the, the Punisher stuff is great, like seeing him you know, hunt down the gangsters, going through his trial, all that's great. But unfortunately, the season very obviously has split its time between what's going on with that and what's going on with the hand, which unfortunately is tied in with Elektra. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and that comes around to bite him in the ass later. Yeah, so in the finale, then, with this this kind of ridiculous fight scene and with a bunch of ninjas in a building which should be awesome yeah but i did think the idea that okay i can't listen to their hearts because they make their hearts stop but i can listen to their breathing i don't know something about the logic of that just really doesn't work for me it's like i feel like it'd be easier to silence your breathing than silence your heart i guess yeah but i'm not sure blind lawyer who has supersonic hearing necessarily has to obey the laws of logic no, I'm not saying that it does. I'm saying that, like, I. But okay. I can see what you mean. It tipped you over the suspension of disbelief. Well, I I can suspend my disbelief usually as long as a piece I'm watching is self consistent, right? If it follows its own rules, and it's just that the fact that he can hear a heartbeat, and then but that these ninjas can silence that, but not silence their breathing when, like, I can silence my breathing. It just, it felt like something is lost in translation here. This doesn't work for me, so. Yeah. It was still a pretty kick-ass ending, though. We got, you know, Punisher showed up to fight ninjas in the end. Electra dies. We're supposed to feel sad, but it's like, yeah. Really don't care. <laughs> yeah. Karen's a much better character. Hell, go date Punisher. He's a more developed character. <laughs> Shippers, beware. <laughs> So, as many of you already know, all month long, we have been giving away free Marvel movies to celebrate Marvel Month here on Geeks with Shields. This is our last one, so uh, make sure you answer this one if you want to get in on it. Remember, you need to do, in order to win, you need to do four things. One, listen to the podcast like you do every week. Two, get the Marvel question. Three, leave the correct answer in the comments below. And four, join the Geeks with Shields group on Facebook. It's a lot of fun. And it's mainly just so we can more easily find you and contact you for your reward. This week's question for the Avengers is, who were its founding members? Are we talking comics or MCU? Comics. Okay. All right. So now let's talk about, um, what's Luke a divisive Cage? one? <laughs> Luke Cage is divisive? I, I feel like it's pretty consistently agreed upon that Luke Cage is pretty awesome until like the last three episodes. and then I don't know. A lot of people I talked to didn't like it. Hmm. All right. I, I mean, like- I I really dug it at the beginning. It basically um, the second Cottonmouth died, like just a like the episode after that. Yeah, everything felt like it lost focus. But up to that point, I was really into it, especially because it. I'm not used to a show with the same kind of like style as that. Like I love the soundtrack. It's just this funky, jazzy, very '70s sounding kind of thing that you just don't see anymore. I like how the neighborhood. Especially Pops' place instantly feels like a real place that I could like go to, walk to, right? I, I love that uh, familiarity that's just kind of built into the how the actors are interacting with each other. I love how 
Luke Cage's entire like dilemma about essentially what he's been through and what he wants to be and what other people want him want him to be is is very relatable not as like a superhero thing but as a like other people's expectations versus your wants kind of kind of narrative so yeah all that sounds good on paper but it's so boring <laughs> see i don't think so i mean nothing I, I... interesting is happening it depends on what you mean by interesting. I think it's very like I love just Luke talking to pops. To me, that's super interesting. And then talking about like old Harlem heroes and stuff. I love cot any scene with Cottonmouth is freaking like eyes glued to the screen. Like that actor yeah. is doing such a good job. It's fascinating. I, I think the problem for me is there's parts that work that really kind of get me through the beginning. Like, okay, we see Luke using his powers, you know, talking to pops, Cottonmouth like all right you've got enough there to get me your overall story hasn't really caught me evil realty or whatever i don't remember and then you kill Cottonmouth, and it's like oh and now luke's evil brother's involved and Cottonmouth's sister's doing something and it's just like uh. yeah no like like i said once Cottonmouth died the show lost so much focus like one episode afterward it's still okay because i found Cottonmouth's sister to be interesting the fact that the show had kind of hidden the fact that she was actually more of a dangerous personality than he was I, I like there was there was interesting stuff to go on there with shades and whatnot but diamondback as you said luke cage's evil brother sucks everything about him sucks the the actor is doing a super hammy job which i love actually usually i love hamming it up because it's fun but he compared to Cottonmouth, he just feels like a cartoon character and again i normally have no problem with that as long as you're consistent but since you had this interesting nuanced person as your villain and then you replace him with what feels like a gi joe villain i, I don't know it that got that to me exosuit I mean, there's gotta be better ways to have a villain that can go against luke cage i mean unbreakable skin super strength okay how can we make that interesting who can he fight i there's gotta be something out Except there I will say, though, that I feel like the, the necessity to have the big end game fight, I don't think that even exists. I just finished Black Lightning, which I feel like, oddly enough, is basically a better version of Luke Cage overall, and it doesn't end with a big fight. I mean, yeah, it ends with Black Lightning and his other other people like dealing with some government agents and stuff, but there's no end season like superhero f or super fight. It's just they deal with the thing and i'm perfectly fine with that like there there are way more interesting there are a plethora of interesting ways to end a season to build to a climax other than just having a villain and a hero beat each other up i agree and i'm not saying you need that but i want to see the heroes showing off their powers and we don't get a lot of that with luke i mean we get the cool hallway scene and we get the cool you know buried alive scene but we never really get to see him flaunting his powers which is such a big part of his character he has all these powers never wants him to use them. he's like no i just want to you know live a quiet life and keep my head down well i'll have to disagree with you on that because like jessica jones for instance barely ever uses her powers and like i said that was my favorite of the marvel properties and luke cage i feel like he gets more than enough scenes of what i want like him taking down christmas addicts that entire sequence where i, I think he was listening to wu-tang clan it was amazing but just constantly getting shot and using the car door and like that whole scene was great and that's yeah. 
really the extent of what I need. And then we get a few more. Like I love him going into the the boxing gym and just his line of like, I'm getting sick and tired of buying new clothes. So Yeah, and maybe the problem was is we came with such an action heavy season with Daredevil season two. Sure. Daredevil season two is su- I mean, when you've got the Punisher and Daredevil and uh, Electra, there was an awful lot of fights, an awful lot of bullets. It was very action heavy. So I don't know. I'm really I haven't watched any of the trailers for season two. Just I don't I haven't had a chance to see them. And I know it's coming out next month and I'm really hoping they get it right. Apparently they're going to do Heroes for Hire. Apparently they're going to bring in Iron Fist. So well, I, maybe I'm really hoping it's better because Luke Cage is one of my all-time favorite street level heroes. He's got this great <laughs> kind of comic booky funness about him. It's it's funny because me and Wretched have had long discussions about what constitutes a street level hero, and that's that's really tough because Luke Cage is is pretty ridiculous. I mean, in the comic, Jessica Jones is basically uh, Captain Marvel, but that's besides the point. Uh, yeah, yeah, but no, like I said, I other than like the last three episodes, I think Luke Cage is is really good. Although I think it's funny that um, in general, I find the Netflix Marvel shows are better as properties than say the the DC uh, live television, and I like oh, all of them. For sure. I like Flash. I like Arrow. I like Legends of Tomorrow, but I feel like none of them are as good as uh, Daredevil or Jessica Jones. But like I said, I just finished Black Lightning yesterday, and I think that one's actually really good. Like probably on par with Daredevil season one for me, for completely different reasons. Like it's barely a superhero show. It's more like a family show. But anyway, we're not here to talk about that. I just I'm excited about it because, like I said, it was way better than I thought it was going to be. But yeah. Uh, Luke Cage is, I guess you could say it's divisive that, I mean, I haven't really met that many people who didn't like it. The You and Wretched, Wretched didn't like it because he felt like, um, I don't know how to say this without coming off bad. Uh, he said something along the lines of he felt like the show's blackness was getting shoved down his throat. And I was like, that's kind of what I like about it. So. Yeah. No. I will let him explain that. I'm not gonna touch that. Yeah, no, that's that's a really and 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 don't get me wrong. It's like it's not like a uh uh like a racist comment or anything like that. It's just a matter of like, um, you know, like what was that uh Afro spy or something like that had that same kind of feeling for me where it's like, okay, I want I want to see the culture because not a culture I'm aware of, but I don't want to feel like it's the only thing, right? Yeah. So like, I love the atmosphere, uh, but you know, have some nuance to it, right? So. Right. Well, speaking of racist comics, Iron Fist. <laughs> yeah, now Iron People Fist. People got mad at Iron Fist because you mentioned you mentioned having Iron Fist come in for season two of Luke Cage, which I think is exactly what they need to do because Iron Fist sucks until Defenders, which I'll talk about when we talk about Defenders. But yeah, um, I don't I- want to say it sucks, but I don't really want to try and defend it because there's not much. I don't have much of a leg to stand on defense wise. Iron Fist is so terrible. Like the the only good things about it, like a lot of the stuff with Ward is pretty good because he's a fucking psycho, and and his yeah. dad Harold Meacham, like their interactions, great, like interesting stuff. But uh, I can't remember the actor's name. Um, but Danny Rand, uh, I like that actor when he was in Game of Thrones. And you know what? Yeah. I, I feel in Defenders, once he understands what he's doing, he's a lot better. But here, God, he's just annoying, and he he. He's so conceited, which is not inherently a problem, but there's like nothing redeemable about him. Iron Fist is a bit of a hot mess. There's a lot of really good ideas and setups, but 
it really feels rushed, and I think it was. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. It feels like it lasts a goddamn lifetime when I watched it last I time. I was able to make it through this, and I couldn't make it through Luke Cage, so I don't know. But some of the things, like in the fence of, uh, I can't remember his name, the guy playing Danny Rand, he came off Game of Thrones and directly into this with little to no downtime in between to really train or prepare for the role. And to me, that feels super apparent with the god-awful fight scenes, which I was gonna say, like be in Iron Fist. Again, we mentioned that Daredevil Season 1 had like the best choreography. Iron Fist is literally a show about what's supposed to be the greatest kung fu master in Marvel. Why is the choreography so bad? In this yeah. entire show. And it's terrible cuts. And he spends half the show not being able to use his one, you know, cool power. And he has a boring costume. And Which it's I'm a bit not, of a hot I'm mess. Not, I'm not bothered by, again, we've talked about this already. I'm not bothered by him not using the Iron Fist very often. Once he finally uses it to break out of the asylum, that was one of the only, that was one of the few scenes I was like, cool. I, I, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest of the shit. Um I'm just more problem with like, okay, if we're supposed to be behind this kid, Danny Rand, you gotta make him likable. And they try by having him be like friendly with homeless people and uh, friendly with like the insane kind of people. But most of the time, he's just he's saying things like, "I am the Iron Fist. This is my duty. I'm the Immortal Iron Fist." It's like how many times does he say, "I am the Immortal Iron Fist" in that he show? He feels like he's an action figure. Yeah, yeah, with he the definitely thing on his back. Either that or he feels like a moron who doesn't understand like the very obvious things <laughs> happening around him. So I, I just I don't think I think the show was rushed into production and they didn't know how to do it. And I will back that up by I think the entire, you know, writing and directing staff was fired from this one for the second season. Uh I, I don't wanna say I hope uh fired because that's I don't know someone's livelihood, but yeah, they need to do something. Just fix something. So, like, Danny Rand is such a boring character, and it doesn't help that, like, like I said, Harold and Ward Meacham actually are interesting. Uh, Joy Meacham is not interesting at all. Uh, no. Colleen Wynn, though, she's cool. Like, yeah, I want to see more of her. Badass, and it was fun to have her introduced. Yeah, and her relationship with Bakudo is way more interesting than anything going on with Danny Rand or even the Wards. Like the fact that she was raised into this cult, only to have the, you know, the the veil pulled over her eyes, and to finally like have it betray her to see what it really is. Like, there's a lot going on psychologically with Colleen that's just so much more interesting. And that's that's even considering the fact that Bakudo himself is not interesting. Like that actor is yeah. weird. I don't really know what he's trying to do. He's he feels like um, I don't know. He he feels like a soap opera actor. Like he delivers his lines kind of stiffly, and everything sounds like it doesn't fit into the tone. The tone he's trying to establish. Like I said, he's not interesting, but his relationship with Colleen is. So yeah, and let's talk about what they did to the hand this season. Uh, making them basically the foot from the first Teenage Mutant Turtles. Yeah, <laughs> and that no, this is an immortal death cult of ninjas. Not, you know, the Foot Clan from a Saturday morning cartoon. You just muddled their everything. I mean, they are supposed to be on par with Hydra in terms of evil societies. Actually, supposed to be even higher than them because the hand's supposed to have existed since for like 10,000 years or something. 
Well, yeah, but you get what I'm saying. There, these are the big bad evils of this universe, and this is what we're going to hinge our big superhero team up going into. And yeah, and you know what? It's like you look at the members of the hand we've seen up to this point, and Madame Gao, she works. She works yeah. really well. I totally buy her as a member of the hand. But Bakudo, no, no, not at all. That I feel like Gao should just bitch slap him. <laughs> Like yeah, no, he feels around. like that creepy dude that hangs outside, you know, high school selling kids drugs. I love the concept that each member of the hand is from like a different uh, ethnicity or country. Like, that's great. But yeah, this is the actor. Not a good job. <laughs> and again, maybe he's better in something else. I don't know his filmography, but here he's just stilted. So. Yeah. So let's go ahead and move on to the big team up. Defenders. All right. Well, first thing, since I already mentioned it, Iron Fist is marginally more interesting here, largely because they let him be the kind of fanboy character who's interested in the team up, who's like kind of excited about it. And that's when the actor's strengths come out, when he can sound like a, you know, an excited child about the, well, the prospect yeah. of the team up. He was isolated for so long, kind of kept out of society, and he thought he was the only one. And now he's getting dropped in amongst all these other superhero people. And he's all for a team-up. He works in that capacity. Plus, as a side note, watching um, Daredevil beat him up is just cathartic. It made me feel yeah. better about watching Iron Fist. So, Well, it also really shows why him and Luke Cage work so well together. Yeah. Though I really... I, I, the interaction between them was good. I know a lot of people ragged on this, didn't like it. And it's good. I still like it. Part of the problem well, is they, they, they ruined the hand. To me, it has the same problem Luke Cage does in that I found it very – it's eight episodes, and five, six of them are are interesting, and the last two just fall apart, largely because you got Sigourney Weaver, who is killing it in every scene she is, and I totally buy her as the the leader of the hand. I mean, it's the queen of sci-fi right there, like one of the most iconic women in the industry, right? And she's – just owning everyone and then you they kill her to replace her with electra who wasn't interesting the first the time decisions. oh it just and and whose motivation at that point is even more muddy, muddied because like at least in daredevil and i say at least like you heard me say before that we didn't really understand her at, at the very least there was this idea that like stick was sending her to try and change matt to make him a killer i mean that's like a justification for why she's there it didn't explain why she had those particular worldviews i guess i mean you could say that stick raised her that way but still i feel like we should have seen more of that anyway that's the point point is here she's like okay i kill the woman who for the last six episodes i have appeared to be you know treated like a mother just kill her out of nowhere and now i'm like yeah i don't care about anything and you know we're gonna continue the plan for some reason basically i'm afraid of death so let's go yeah and the plan was dumb Okay, we need to get more dragon bones to preserve our immortality. That's that's your big play. Hydra oh. wants to rule the world. Thanos wants to wipe out the universe. You want some magic dragon bones. Also, I hate the fact that that's the the source of their power. I, I admit I um, don't know the hand too well from the comics, but it's like I I thought the idea that they were this immortal ninja sect right um th well that means they're not immortal if they're uh, if their ability to be immortal comes from a finite resource then they're not immortal they just have a a really long life but eventually they're going to run out of that resource so yeah so no 
that didn't work. But the hero team-ups and the action did. It was really cool to see them all work off each other, go up against each other. I really I like... the actors worked well together. As a side note, I really like how the Japanese member of the hand refuses to not speak in Japanese, even though he can mm-hmm. understand everyone. Like, that just seemed to me like an appropriate thing. I, I, I kind of wish they'd all only speak in their native language, but still understand each other because they all know each other's languages. Like, I would have thought that would that would have been really cool, I think. Yeah. But, but, but yeah, yeah, as yeah, for the actual... Again, another great hallway scene where they all team up together and fight. Um... Yeah, no, the actual team-up is great. I, I was thinking about it the other day, and I was like, I think it's interesting that... You know, if you just pit them all against each other in like one on ones, Daredevil we've seen can beat Danny, and I would think he could beat Jessica, even though she's super strong. He's you know, like a, a trained as a ninja, but he has nothing he can do against Luke Cage, right? On the other hand, Luke Cage loses to Danny because the Iron Fist is busted, and he loses to Jessica because she's just way stronger than him. So it's like it's an interesting power dynamic going on in the group. Is my point? Yeah, no, it wasn't bad i don't know what they're going to do for an encore you want to know what the main problem with the defenders as a team is though i would say is that when you have the big action sequence like at the end they they do play a wu-tang song i remember that for the big end uh final episode action sequence when you think about to the avengers right and they had the big team up each member of the avengers is doing something very different. Hawkeye's shooting these tech arrows. Iron Man's flying around shooting like missiles. Hulk's just smashing things. You know, Thor is lightning everything. But the point is, they're all doing something very distinctly different. When the Defenders all get together in the big action sequence, all of them are just punching people. There's really nothing different visually about what they're all doing. So it's just lackluster as a team-up. Yeah, I want to have a degree. No, they need to differentiate their powers and their fighting styles. Because Luke's a brawler. You know, Iron Fist has got his kung fu. Daredevil has got his billy club and his own style. And maybe develop something for Jessica. I don't know what, but you're right. They do need to different. If they're going to go forward and do this again, and they should in their series themselves, is each series has its own distinct tone, but the characters need their own distinct fighting style. So yeah, that when which, they do come together, it's not just, okay, this is four people punching four other people. Oh, well, which, as I've said, I don't think the action sequences are actually vital. Like, the, the team-up, the best part of it is just seeing how they interact. Like, I love Jessica Jones just constantly giving Matt Murdock crap for, for being here. Like, that's hilarious. So I don't really need good, like, you know, action sequences. If I have good character interaction, that's the main reason I see a team-up. I want to see these characters interact. But if you're going to have big action sequences they need to be there needs to be a reason for them to exist right yeah it's icing on the cake for me cake is fine on its own but i kind of want icing on it as well sure i can agree with the metaphor i mean it's a food metaphor so it's super hacky but i'll agree with it (laughs) all right so let's wrap up with jessica jones season two which me personally i thought was better than season one i don't but that's only because I think season two of Jessica Jones doesn't have the same level of focus. Like it feels a little more spread out and uh, muddied in general. It's doing a lot of different things at once. Like, because in season one, right, every character's issue that they were dealing with was very, was tied, at least in my estimations, was tied directly to this metaphor of abuse, 
Like it was abuse in one way or another, whether it was Trish and her mom, whether it was Jerry and like her ex and like how they were treating each other. Like it's all about abuse. Season two though is like, okay, Jessica's going to deal with this issue about essentially how she, about her parents and how she became a hero. Meanwhile, Trish over here is going to deal with her issues of her jealousy and, and her feelings of inadequacy. Meanwhile, Malcolm's dealing with issues about like the people around him, not living up to his expectations. And so you get my point that like, they're all interesting ideas, but they're not connected thematically the same way they were in season one. I disagree. I think it's about overcoming and dealing with addiction because Malcolm has to overcome the fact that he's an addict and now he's developing new addictions to fill that, you know, need. Um, Jessica is becoming an even worse alcoholic than she was before. And even though, you know, people pushing like, listen, you saved the city, you teamed up with people, you should be moving forward. She's digging in her heels and regressing more. Everyone around her is, you know, it's kind of a talking metaphor for addictions and getting past and people's own personal crutches. You see, I feel like, at least for me, that's not the case because, like, Malcolm, right, his whole thing isn't about him, like, dealing – he doesn't really struggle with his addiction this season at all. He's past it. He has his one off the wagon because Trish – pushes on him but that's that scene isn't about him that scene's about where trish is at because malcolm has no has no like desire to go back to it right i've forgotten that whole part trish this season though you just remind me i hate to interrupt you but that whole love story between trish and malcolm was garbage um again i consider that not to be about a love story that's more about what's going on with trish but my point is before we get into that that i don't feel like malcolm's story really is at all about addiction it's about dealing with he's the... a bit of a sex addict uh sex addict he has well he's you kind of have sex it... twice in the series no it's kind of zone. he set up a dating app and he's just you know having as much sex as he possibly can and i don't really get that feeling that it's as much as possible again he spends most of his time throwing himself into the work which he explains as having something to do but they kind of give him shit over but i don't know let us yeah. know in the comments how you interpreted that yeah, I was saying that, like, I don't see that as his narrative arc in this particular series. His narrative arc is about, like, separating himself from Jessica, who was the one, who was the crutch that let him get over his addiction in the first place, which is why at the end of the series, we see him no longer at all really connected to her. So the, yeah. the his arc throughout the series is about him learning more about the other people around him, learning about their problems and how to separate his problems from their problems. Yeah, I also think there's a kind of a great message about toxicity and the people you keep around you yeah sure oh definitely that's that's a strong one uh i mean certainly has to do with the so here's the thing with jessica jones season two i i don't dislike it i really do like it i just think that that from what i see is a a lack of thematic cohesion makes it weaker than season one but i still think it's better than bless you i still think it's better than like um daredevil season two for instance because i have the same like level of a you know a weakness that i can point to yeah, everything that has to do with Jessica's mom hit me really hard, particularly the the ending. Uh, like I was actually emotionally fucked at the end of Jessica Jones season two. So I don't think I'll ever watch it again unless I'm like really want to watch it with someone else. But yeah, yeah. It, so like that, it gets props just for affecting me the way it did there. So no, and it really is interesting because you're sitting there watching her as a character, like 
wow. I mean, it's really good that they didn't go, okay, you killed your abuser. Now you get to be all better. No, it's like she may have gotten even worse. And now, you know, the trauma of her mom is back and that being an issue. And then her realizing her mother is this toxic influence in her life. But what do you do? Yeah, I, I love the fact that her mother is framed in the story to to the audience really supposed to see her as like we understand what's going on with her. We don't condone it and we get that she's sick, but at the same time she is treating it in a way that is dangerous to not just the people around her, but to herself. And it's like we as the audience are supposed to be like, okay, we feel for you, but at the same time, you are causing too many problems, and it's a complicated relationship we're supposed to have with her. And I find that interesting. So yeah, and now let's talk about Trish this season because Trish gets a lot of shit, and rightly so. She well, yeah, started out strong. The point I think though is that th- this whole season, like I said, is about Trish dealing with her feelings of inadequacy compared to Jessica because Jess she sees Jessica as an insult to everything that she believes and she loves her but she's like you have these powers and you aren't being responsible about them so she's almost a sick inversion of with great power comes great responsibility because she honestly believes that but to a point where like she's thrusting a dogma onto someone who doesn't want it so then when she has something that lets her get some semblance of what she sees as almost what she feels she's owed like that's what she's dealing with. And so we're watching someone grapple with feelings of inadequacy and addiction and how they're dealing with these things. And it's interesting that she is such a weak character in this season, I think. Yeah. No, I'm curious what they're going to do with her in the next season when I'm 99% sure they're making her Hellcat. Yeah, I looked it up. Uh, deal with that whole trauma. What's that I'm making her thing? Like um, people who were fans of the Alias comic like really knew that that's who she was going to turn into from the beginning. I, I wikied it after this season because I didn't read the Alias comics. So. Yeah, no, I was kind of, they don't always follow through necessarily, and they could totally subvert it. But no, this one seemed like established, yeah, we're doing that one. Also, I want to say that, and this is, I think, obvious, but the, the best episode was definitely the one where they went full, like, Dexter and had Jessica Jones see a hallucination of Kilgrave the whole time. It's like, again, oh, yeah. I know you, you, we talked before, you're not as fan of Kilgrave as me, but her literally representing Jessica Jones's negative impulses and memories and, and being there, like, is just fun. And it reminds well, me of... worked perfectly for me in this season. Yeah. yeah. So, like, I hope that... Because his ending was, you know, he said something like, I'll, you know, I'll be here, so they better not make that a one-time thing. Because I remember I was a big fan of the show Dexter. Uh, now I'm a proponent of just watch season one. And if you must go farther than that, stop after season five because Dexter got really, really bad. But in season uh, six, there's an episode called, uh, I want to say Nebraska, maybe it's Oklahoma. But the whole concept is that Dexter's dark passenger, that's normally Harry, uh, his dad, is replaced by his serial killer brother and he goes full evil for the whole episode. And that is brilliant and it's like amazing. I want to see more of that. They didn't. But so I want to see, yeah. That's basically what they did with this Jessica Jones episode. So do it again. Maybe go a little farther. Maybe have Jessica actually commit a less morally ambiguous act of evil. Because right, she killed this guy in in Jessica season two when this first happened. But the guy was trying to kill her. So, eh, right? Yeah, like, I don't know. Maybe, but maybe have her do something more straight up. Like this was wrong, and now you have to deal with this. <laughs> 
I wouldn't go straight up wrong, but maybe more morally gray. Sure. Because if you ever go straight up, you know, wrong, that kind of is a betrayal of her character because part of the reason she doesn't want to be a hero is because she doesn't want that responsibility. I don't feel like it's a betrayal if you end it on redemption, right? Like, the best example of this in my mind is Angel from Buffy Season 2, where he goes full evil for more than half the season. By the end of it, he gets his soul back and he's good again. But but we had a season of build-up, and then to have him go full evil was, like, not a betrayal of his character. It was like a, all right, this is where he's at now, and we have to see how we're going to get him back, right? Now, in that case, I guess you say it made more sense because he's a vampire and soulless. And in this case, Jessica Jones doesn't have the same excuses. But I'm saying that it's only a betrayal if the ending doesn't essentially justify the the activities in the morally gray space. Yeah. So we'll see what they do next season. I can totally see her in her have to kill, you know, her friend and everyone going, Oh my God, you killed Patsy. You're a monster. And that whole storyline being developed. Could be, could be super interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of ways to go. I'm still waiting on the moon Knight series, which <laughs> it will happen. I believe it will happen, and I want Moon Knight because I think that would be really kind of cool. No, it will happen eventually. There, I mean, what, Legion is a show at this point, so... Plus, that would break up the monotony of the fighting style. I guess. I'll take your word for it. I'm not a fan of Moon Knight, <laughs> so... Alright, well, let's talk about things we are fans of with our suggestion of the week. Uh, go ahead and start us off, Axel. Mine is actually brand new, as in it came out um six days ago as of recording. I know it is day of the recording, but whatever. Uh, it's a new D&D YouTube show called Dark and Dicey. It's run by Dungeons and Dragons. So it's got like the the same you know kind of quality of a lot of the best ones, like Critical Role and Dice Camera Action. It's DM is, I'm going to butcher his name probably, uh, Kaiji Tang who apparently was the voice of uh, Detective Pikachu. I don't, that doesn't really mean anything to me, but he's hilarious. Um, as for the the players, I only know three of them. There are five players. There's Nathan Sharp, also known as Nathan Wants to Battle, who's in Dice Game Reaction, and he's brilliant here is this Scottish drunk Kenku, which is a bird person. Um, right. His wife, Christina V, who's a prominent voice actress, um, she voices like Kilawa and Hunter Hunter, for instance. Uh, she is a snake lady who speaks in a Russian accent and is constantly trying to start a cult. So she's hilarious. And then there's Zach Callison, the voice of uh, Steven from Steven Universe. He also has a burgeoning rap career. I actually listened to his single War. It was pretty good. But uh, he plays a... a I think he's supposed to be British, a uh, deep gnome, but he's a, a hardened bastard because they're all like supposed to be dark and edgy characters, but they're making fun of it, essentially. Um, yeah, there's only one episode out at time of recording, but it's really good. And if, like me, you're a fan of things like Dice Camera Action, Critical Role, Acquisitions Incorporated, uh, The Unexpectables, here's another D&D show to add to the roster. So. Alright. Well, mine is also new. It's a uh little indie game called Kingdoms and Castles, which is essentially a castle sim, sort of in the style of Stronghold, where, you know, you build your little castle, you, you know, you got housing and you got resources, and you have to try and, you know, balance resource production, food production, and then occasionally face off, you know, get rid of Vikings and dragons. 
it's a really simple, you know, pixel art design, but it's only $10 and it's insanely fun for, you know, just quick for pick up and play. Um, probably the best thing is the developers are continuing to add and to expand to it. So, you know, you can play it for a little while, get bored of it, and then, you know, come back a uh, month or two later and the developers will introduce all new tech trees or all new things. And for $10, get it. It's worth it. If you like SimCity, Stronghold, just any Sim, it's a lot of fun. I really cannot recommend it enough. I've had a lot of fun playing it. All right. I mean, I'm not a fan of those kind of games, really. Uh, I mean, I suppose I like Civ and Age of Empires and stuff, but I feel like a lot of those games are too um, mobile-ish, I guess. So I'd have to see. I'd have to see gameplay. But if Ulrich likes it, I mean, he's the one who got me to play Civ to begin with and Age of Mythology, now I think about it. So, sure. All right. Well, thank you again for listening. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a comment down, down below if there's something you'd like to hear us talk about in a future episode. We are on Twitter and Patreon. Links will be in the description below. As always, this has been Lord Commander Ulrich. And his shield brother, Axel Wright. Be sure to tune in next time and stay honorable. Yeah.